District of Conservation is sponsored by CFACT. To learn more about our sponsor, head over to CFACT.org. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Hi, everyone. It's Gabriella here. Thanks for tuning to the show. We have been doing a lot of interviews. I haven't been recording proper introductions, so I'm going to change it up a bit for today with this more kind of immediate podcast episode. I largely pre-recorded some stuff, but I figured I'd give you guys a live update today on this Tuesday, September the 14th. I have a lot to unpack, but before I do, I want to briefly talk about a cool experience I had over the weekend. It is still a little too humid to optimally fish for trout, but I went to Gunpowder Falls in Maryland, which is this legendary trout stream. If you're a fly angler and you're familiar with the mid-Atlantic, this is Lefty Cray's hometown stream, and fly anglers from all over the country, especially here on the East Coast, descend to this place. It's like the holy grail, granddaddy of them all fly fishing destinations, and I was able, very, I guess, by a strike of luck, able to get a fingerling brown trout. I accidentally misidentified it as a brook trout for some odd reason, but I forget when you see a trout with little red dots and a yellow kind of sheath um, scales, that's a brown trout, not a brook trout. So I made the mistake. Someone corrected me, not to call me out rudely, but I was fine with admitting I was wrong. Sometimes I misidentify trout, so don't hold it against me. But anyway, that was so much fun. I got to go with some great people and just kind of flex my muscle and do that unexpectedly. I was not expecting to catch a fish that day on Sunday, so that was a lot of fun. And I'm going to be chronicling more fishing adventures coming up very, very soon. So if you haven't already prepared, you should get ready for trout season in addition to hunting season. But we're going to talk about several initiatives, interesting updates. I'm going to read for you my recent op-ed in the Daily Caller where I talk about proactive forest management, a bill that is coming up, something you need to be aware of, especially with people trying to bypass legislative processes. We are seeing efforts out West to remake state wildlife agencies, to install people who have nothing to do with conservation, point blank, I'm sorry to say that, people who want to remake the agencies and move away from the North American model of wildlife conservation. So I will deconstruct that for you all here on the podcast today. On the forest management front, I have a op-ed I think you all should check out in the Daily Caller that I wrote on behalf of Independent Women's Forum as part of my duties as a visiting fellow. And this is a subject I've wanted to broach for a very, very long time. And it's very convoluted, forest management. It's actually quite easy to rectify the problem, believe it or not. But we have refusal from certain states, and I think under this administration, to do so, even though the Forest Service has said we have the tools in effect, we can implement this. But we're not seeing it carried out, and I think they're getting distracted by certain agendas. They have faulted the blame on climate change when climate change actually plays a very minimal role in these high intensity forest fires. So I'm going to explain how that is the case for you by briefly reading from my Daily Caller article. The National Interagency Fire Center, if you guys don't know what it is, records and monitors fires that break out. There's also this huge fire engulfing Lake Tahoe, which is a beautiful, iconic place You always see those Keep Tahoe Blue stickers. If you're from out west like I am, I'm from California, so I know about Tahoe. And you sometimes see those stickers here on the East Coast. But that area has been pummeled by fires recently. And it's funny, it took an iconic area like that for people to start to care about forest management, interestingly enough. But I think it's unacceptable to tolerate this scale of destruction. 
and just see this refusal to manage fires out west, especially in the state of California. But it's not the entire picture all across the country. Believe it or not, actually, out east, states like Florida, Georgia, Virginia do fire management really well. And California has, unfortunately, a century of fire suppression, and that is exacerbating the fire mitigation woes that we're seeing. And I wrote in my article that it's not simply enough to organize two working groups, which is what the Biden administration has done. And I argue that for forest management to be realized, policymakers must identify the root causes of high-intensity fires instead of solely assigning blame to climate change. And there's a recent IOP science study, which I pulled from an article that Kat Dwyer of PERC, who is also an associate contributor to Young Voices. I'm also part of Young Voices as well, but I loved her article in the Salt Lake Tribune about this subject, and I derived this portion from her article. I I took the study she included and made it into my own interpretation of it, and she identified, and like the study identified, authored by four scientists, that the largest contributors to fire, the key drivers, are live fuel, which accounts for 53%, followed by weather patterns relating to fires, then climate change, which is 14%. And even in California, top four scientists point to the massive accumulation of wood fuel, not climate change, as the underlying factor behind intense events. So it's very easy to blame climate change for this, and it's irresponsible to do so if we're trying to identify the root causes of this. We also have a problem with the mentality of people, especially in California. A lot of the authorities there, not so much the people in forest management, but you have special interests who have lobbied California state government, especially to cling to this notion of pristine wilderness. And pristine wilderness can be very counterproductive, especially when forests are left unmanaged, save for a few and outdoor activities and it has led to forests, especially in California, being overgrown and overmature. And when you see this absence of management, it leads to threats, including threats to forest biodiversity, watersheds, and wildlife populations, therefore leading fires to be more possible and leading these forests to become fire prone. And proactive forest management, I argue, is a viable alternative. It sounds scary, but it's not. And it takes many forms, but it can be especially realized through prescribed burns, which is one such remedy available. And according to a 2017 Advancing Earth and Space Science report, wildfire smoke pollutes three times as much as smoke that emanates from prescribed burns. If you didn't know that, that is because the Clean Air Act deems wildfire smoke natural, while smoke from prescribed burns is anthropogenic or human-caused, requiring regulation as a pollutant, and therefore this leads to fewer controlled burns. And controlled burns are necessary because they reduce smoke impacts, consuming accumulated fuels that would otherwise be conducive to wildfires, thus reducing wildfire hazards. And if you're claiming to be in support of clean air standards, how can you oppose such a remedy? This is what preservationist environmentalists do, unfortunately, and they certainly mislead people. And believe it or not, the state of Florida, of all states, people love to hate on Florida, but I don't. I like Florida. I think Florida is misunderstood by preservationists and environmentalists on purpose. They don't like the governor, so they completely shatter any legitimacy towards the state. But they are phenomenal, believe it or not, when it comes to prescribed burns and getting fires under control. And NPR has a great article, believe it or not, that says why the South is decades ahead of the West in wildfire prevention. And they include this funny tidbit. 
from 1998 to uh, 2019, 70% of all controlled burning in the country was in the Southeast. And they're saying this is largely used, this practice by Native American tribes. I also mentioned that in my Daily Caller op-ed. And if there is no fire, NPR argues, the landscape is prone to intense, potentially devastating wildfires. And despite this risk, they write, Western states have struggled to expand the use of controlled burns. Even so, the Forest Service suspended them because of the extensive fires burning in record dry conditions. Now several Western states are moving to adopt the fire policy pioneered by Florida and other Southern states as a hedge against the future. They include training problems for burn leaders and providing liability protection for them. The bigger challenge is changing the culture around fire so that residents know that tolerating a little smoke from good fires can help stop the destructive blazes that cloud the air for weeks. And this is actually even being explored in the form of a bill in California's legislature, which is unheard of, believe it or not. And I'll include links in the show notes for all these articles that I've alluded to, but there has just been this misinterpretation of good fire versus bad fire. We've had a century of fire suppression out West, especially in states like California. We're even seeing places like National Geographic say that it is time to have proactive fire management. Very good to see people turning the corner, but unfortunately we're going to be hamstringed on this issue with preservationist environmentalist interests still trying to dictate this, saying that there are endangered species in these forests. We can't do logging. We can't do mechanical thinning. We can't do these different effective uh, sustainable practices, but maybe there is some hope on this front. I'm not sure we're going to see any movement from this administration, despite, like I said, there are pieces and things being laid in the groundwork. There are proposals and solutions available that even the Forest Service has talked about, but it remains to be seen if these will be realized. However, in Congress, there are bills potentially to address this, and I believe this was Senator Lummis of Wyoming, who has been a past guest on the show. It is Senator Lummis and Chairman Newhouse of the Congressional Western Caucus. They both introduced bills to reduce the risk of forest fires, which is called the Stop Catastrophes Act or the Stop Causing alarming tree, air, and soil trauma resulting from obstructive progressives and hypocritical environmentalist schemes act. That's very long-winded. Senator Lummis's bill is a companion bill to Congressman Dan Newhouse's bill of the same name. And Senator Lummis said, for too long, litigious radical groups have hindered efforts to maintain and preserve our national forest under the guise of environmentalism. This bill would cut some of the red tape that these groups exploit to ensure that Wyoming and the nation's forest managers have the resources and flexibility needed to actively manage forests and prevent wildfires. And under the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA reforms, agencies may be granted exclusions to certain requirements of the law for actions that do not individually or cumulatively have significant effects on the environment. These CEs or categorical exclusions can reduce paperwork and save limited time and resources. Under this bill, categorical exclusions are expanded to include the removal of noxious weeds, hazardous fuel management, creating fuel fire breaks, allowing fencing, wildlife habitat, erosion control devices, and the creation of permanent infrastructure such as stock ponds. This bill also includes acreage caps for categorical exclusions to 10,000 acres in order to allow these forest management activities to be utilized on a greater scale. And I'll include the link in the show notes. And I also talk about actually the NEPA reforms that were pursued under the Trump administration. Like I said, mechanical thinning is also another solution because thinning dense forests of trees, they can better withstand wildland fires. It's also going to lead to greater tree mortality if you don't have this, and greater susceptibility to infestation and disease from invasive species like the bark beetle. 
And the Trump administration proposed prescribed fire guidance to encourage active management. Like I said, they wanted to narrow the definition of, quote, major federation action to better manage force and expand on categorical exclusions, which is what Senator Lummis and Congressman Newhouse's bills would do to discourage redundant efforts. If the Biden administration doesn't use this as a framework, it their seriousness about tackling this problem, even as unserious as they are, will be further put into question because, like I said, working groups are bunk. You need to be proactive because fires are raging out west. Forests and people are going to be imperiled. And if you don't have human action on this, not all human action is destructive. We can be active participants. The Native Americans loved and used and leaned on prescribed burns because it was medicine to create critical animal habitats, enhance resources, and prevent larger scale fires. And this would allow forests to become more resilient and allow for low intensity regular fire cycles, which are necessary and not as destructive as people make it out to be. And I want to leave with this thought before I go on to this next issue. For too long, destructive preservationist policies have guided policymaking in Washington, D.C. to the detriment of both nature and people. The federal government must follow the science and finally get serious about sustainably managing our nation's forests. Like I had alluded to in the introduction of today's episode, we are seeing efforts. We discussed this on past episodes relating to these petitions to bypass the congressional process where rules changes happen governing conservation practices, hunting, fishing, that sort. But now we're seeing groups, especially radical preservationist groups, try to find other maneuvers to insert themselves. They say because so few people partake in hunting and fishing in this country, although they generate the large sum of the largest percentage of monies relating to conservation. They don't deserve a seat at the table. Our methods are archaic. They're outdated. And we have to better reflect participants. Preservationists need to have a greater stake, which I think would be very costly and detrimental to conservation in this country. Some of you listening may be in disagreement with me, but I still think hunters and anglers play an integral role given how much money we put into the system through Pittman-Robertson funds. This is being taken out of the Chronicle, out of Washington State. So the headline for you guys to take away from this is new nonprofit focuses on reforming state wildlife management advocates shift from consumption to conservation. And I'm going to explain why this is a problem to view hunting and fishing as consumptive activities. And actually, I'm going to plug in Cyrus Baird from Delta Waterfall. He is a friend of the show. I've known Cyrus for many years. He's guided me on conservation practices. And if Glenn Youngkin wins governor of Virginia, he would be smart to put him in our state wildlife agency. That's a addendum. But I hope, yeah, if Youngkin does win governor, I hope he taps Cyrus to help execute true conservation practices at the Virginia Department of Wildlife Resources going forward. And what Cyrus had mentioned about this for why you need to be careful with using the language about consumptive users. And, and Cyrus writes about this article I've been telling friends and colleagues for a while that the next big fight in conservation world isn't going to be Washington, D.C. or even their state capitol building. Instead, it'll play out in mostly empty commission rooms and public meetings of state fish and wildlife agencies. And for years, um, he mentioned state wildlife management must shift from a model of consumption to a model of conservation and recognize the realities of the dual crises that we face today. This is from the article. 
And so I'm, I'm picking apart what Cyrus analyzed and also from the article. For years, we've been telling anyone who will listen to the number of hunters and anglers in the United States and decrease dramatically, and it has. But one thing we don't account for with this messaging is folks weaponizing that against us with the very agencies we've relied on for over a century. Washington's wildlife model is based on the North American model of wildlife conservation as are most wildlife agencies, a system that harnessed the desires and dollars of hunters and anglers to help pull once endangered species like deer and elk from the brink of extinction to abundance. Some have questioned, however, whether the model is relevant with a nationwide decrease in hunting participation. Cyrus adds this comment, if you're a hunter and you don't regularly attend your state fish and wildlife agency meetings change that and then he adds one final thought there is no such thing as a quote consumptive end quote versus non-consumptive user everyone is a consumptive user the sooner we stop allowing folks to get away with using that to talk about things like hunting versus hiking the better and here is some more from this too so what is the new nonprofit? A new nonprofit has entered the conservation fray, preservationist fray, and is focusing on reforming how Washington state manages its wildlife and ecosystems. Washington Wildlife First will set its sights on reforming state agencies, primarily the Washington Department of Fish and Wildlife. And state wildlife management must shift from a model of consumption to a model of conservation, preservation, because they're distorting what conservation truly means and recognize the realities of the dual crises that we face today, rapid climate change and unprecedented biodiversity loss. Chris Bachman, the advocacy director for Washington Wildlife First said in a statement, we need agencies that value science, respect nature, and prioritize the protection and restoration of natural ecosystems, end quote. I don't know about you guys, but I have worked with my state wildlife agency. I'm actually doing a few projects with them. Fun fact, Um, I haven't advertised that, but I have partnered with my state wildlife agency for a few video projects, and I will be doing that again very soon. A lot of you have worked with your state wildlife agency indirectly, directly. You know very well for the fact that these individuals, the wildlife biologists, the people employed by state wildlife agencies, I have friends that also work in many different wildlife agencies too, uh, who have scientific backgrounds and those who don't, but who are following the science. If they're not following the science, how are they able to determine hunting quotas, fishing quotas, management, habitat restoration efforts? So this is a misnomer to to claim for this group to claim that they're not guided by science. And how can you think that they don't take a multi-pronged approach? These individuals who are at the helms of wildlife agencies, who guide policy, who guide rules changes, who guide hunting and fishing quotas, if they're not guided by science, how can they assess and determine what should be harvested, what the quota numbers are, uh, whether you should practice catch and release, whether you should uh, have fewer species hunted successfully during hunting season? And if it's not guided by science, what is it guided by? Do they think it's like sunshine and lollipops or some sort of method that is not guided by science? This is a very specialized field. To claim that they are not leaning on science is very disingenuous. And these preservationists are largely freeloaders. I'm sorry to say this. I'm going to be point blank about it. But they're freeloaders who don't pay into the system. And there's talk about including hikers, bikers, and other users, active participants in outdoor recreation activities to have them pay some sort of excise tax. But the large bulk of funding, even with vulnerable position hunting and hunting has been, but although we are seeing numbers change and more participants coming back to the fold, we still, hunters and anglers, play an active role. And if we are taken out from the equation, we are going to see a move to preservationist environmentalist ethos and policies, and that is going to be very destructive. That is why we have wildfires raging out west. We don't need these people to hamstring wildlife biologists, to take us out of the equation, 
to interfere with wildlife management practices that are foolproof and successful and guided by the science. So we need to look out for these Washington Wildlife First groups. I have no doubt you're going to see them create chapters all across the country. This is not going to stop in Washington state. We're going to see this pop up in Virginia. I have no doubt we're going to see this pop up in California and other states. So you need to be aware of these incrementalist approaches, especially by people trying to influence state wildlife agencies through these maneuvers. So Cyrus said it best. There are no consumptive versus non-consumptive users. And just because we take out wildlife or just because we harvest wildlife, I should say, doesn't mean that we're destroying everything. We hunters and anglers recognized, our predecessors recognized at the turn of the 20th century, we were doing harm with market game practices, that we didn't have any hunting seasons in effect. And we were the ones to rectify the problems. And our contributions largely have resulted in species bouncing back. You read this about the Pittman-Robertson Act. You see this with the different organizations out there who have helped restore turkeys, elk, deer, bears, hunters and anglers especially are playing an integral role in species restoration efforts. We've been doing this and this is inconvenient for preservationists to hear, but this is something we don't shy away from. We are largely driven by the facts here at District of Conservation. And yes, I may be biased in this respect, but I like to be guided by scientific evidence, by the facts, by the numbers, and it's hard to deny and it's irrefutable to conclude that hunters and anglers are not playing an integral role. So be aware of this, be aware of these preservationist organizations that will try to transform your state wildlife agency, get involved in meetings. What I did, something I don't largely do, I put in comments against a coyote killing contest, which actually comments like these were not supposed to be introduced because outside groups are not supposed to be influencing rules changes here in Virginia from what I was told and what Ken Perot talked about in the Freelance Star. I'll reference that article too, but I actually put in comments for the first time or maybe the second time. Uh, against rules changes to coyote hunting contests, even though I don't necessarily partake in predator management efforts myself. But I recognize that this incremental attack on hunting wouldn't just stop with predator contests. This would expand to perhaps the black bear hunt, which is a robust hunting program here. We have lots of bears harvested this year. People don't like bear hunting and they've had bear hunting disappear in New Jersey, although the science points to the bears being recovered, not imperiled, not endangered. So we could see this go to black bear hunting. We just had our elk hunt just approved. This could go towards elk hunting. They'll find some reason to not allow for this to proceed. So that is why you have to be involved with putting comments, attending the meetings whenever you can. Maybe I'll do my best to attend meetings here in Virginia if any of these changes come afoot. But you have to be involved. You have to be engaged. Much like in the political process, you need to be involved in the state wildlife agency process as well and be in the know and organize people to protect hunting and fishing heritage in your state. So that is where I'm going to end. That was kind of long-winded, but I needed to note this because we're not just focusing on policy that happens here in D.C. We are looking out to see if policies that are spurred from the states could expand nationwide. And this is what happens in the policymaking process. We see efforts pass statewide and then they go national, especially in more preservationist, environmentalist leaning states. So be vigilant, be aware of this. And I hope you took away some important knowledge from this and we'll get proactive. Thank you for listening to the show. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure you're following us on your preferred podcast player. We like to recommend Apple Podcasts because Apple is where most of our listenership hails from. So if you head over to Apple, subscribe, 
comb through some episodes and leave us reviews, we'd be more than appreciative of your support in that manner. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat nor a guest announcement. And you can connect with me personally on my social media feeds. All of the Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram links that I have are all denoted by blue check marks. Really easy to find me. So engage with me there. I'd love to hear your thoughts. If you want to recommend yourself for the show as a prospective guest, I'm all ears to hear and sift through different inquiries. Stay tuned for the next episode. Really appreciate you listening to District of Conservation.